Um, if you have a copy of God's word, open it up to the gospel of Luke. We're going to look at sort of a peculiar and an obscure uh, narrative this evening in Luke's gospel. And I want to take you here because really of how deeply it has personally ministered to me. Um, it's, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but, but I chose it because it is simple and it is deeply hopeful uh, and practical. And it's a snapshot of the gospel message. Uh, really what it is, is Jesus heals a woman and um, a woman who had an issue uh, of blood, uh, as the text says. And it's probably less well known than the story. It's kind of wrapped in. Uh, Dr. Young, actually, a few Sundays ago on Easter, was talking about Jairus. Jairus had a daughter who was sick and ended up dying. And Jesus went and, and, and uh, brought her back from the dead. And as he's going to do that, this scene happens. And I'm telling you, um, the first time that I really uh, personally engaged with it, uh, the word daughter, the word daughter is in this text. Jesus heals this woman and he says, daughter, uh, go in peace. And that absolutely gripped me. So hopefully as we dive into it some, uh, what I've been praying for you uh, throughout the day is that what the Holy Spirit did uh, in me, the hope that he gave me, the encouragement that he gave me as I engaged with it myself, um, that, that he make really evident here. So uh, Luke 8, I want to set up just a bit of context before I read, starting in verse 40. I'm going to read verse 40 to 48. Uh, Jesus has been teaching and he goes across the Galilee to perform a couple of miracles. As soon as he arrives back, there's a bunch of needy people who are crowding around him. He gets called away to perform another miracle that was going to heal Jairus's daughter. And then in the midst of that, on his way to go do that, uh, this is what happens. So we're coming into that scene right now. And you thought your life was chaotic. Jesus lived a chaotic life. Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So that's where Jesus is headed. He's going to do that. But as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let me pray over that. Ask that God would help us see what he wants. Father, would you help us? Lord, would your spirit um, be here and amongst us and with us and in us? And, and would he give us eyes to see way more than black and white words? Lord, would he open up our ears to hear way more than a sinful man talking? Lord, would your spirit help us 
to meet with your son. Only you can do that. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Um, how many of you out there dabble with your own landscaping? A few of you? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I don't even do uh, dabble. Like dabble is a step up from what I do. Basically, it's the time of the year where whatever I planted last year that I killed, it's time to replace that and, and kill something new this year. So, I, yeah. And listen, I got to tell you, doing your own landscaping as a man, um, it, it really has, has been a blow to my masculinity uh, and just the cool factor. I literally said out loud a couple of weeks ago, walking outside my front, I was like, man, I'm really disappointed with our azaleas this year. And the, as soon as that came out of my mouth, like I knew I would never be cool again. I was like, okay, that is behind me. I literally just said that, that I'm disappointed with our azaleas this year. I'm, I'm done. But anyway, I was at the plant nursery a few weekends ago uh, trying to pick out some stuff that, again, I, I know that's going to die, but, you know, I'm trying. And uh, so I had to get three boxwoods, and they have a uh, selection of about 10 boxwoods. Well, as I'm trying to select and choose which ones I want to take home and plant, which ones am I going to be drawn to? Well, the, the, the healthy ones, the full ones, you know, the strong ones. Because there's something in humanity. I mean, we're drawn to the strong things of the world. Uh, we're drawn to uh, the things that appear to um, have substance. And yet, when I read this book and I read about our Savior, he's not drawn to the strong. You see, he's drawn to the weak. He's drawn to weakness. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the strong. He came for the weak. Thankfully, he's different than us. And that's the thing that I want you to see in this text, in this engagement with this random woman, is that Jesus came for and is drawn to the broken. Now, the hopeful part in that is that we are all broken, that's, that's who we are. And so the fact that the Savior of the world would be drawn to that is deeply hopeful. And that's what we see in this story. So I want to unpack just a few things here with the hopes of this, that the Holy Spirit would apply these things to our hearts and ultimately our lives. So the first thing I want you to get is this big problem, no remedy. Big problem, no remedy. Look with me in verse 43, if you would. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, that's a little bit hard for us to understand from a 2016 American cultural uh, perspective. But you have to think, put yourself in this context, medical issues that would be of no concern to us at all now, I mean, could be life-threatening in this era. And not only life-threatening, but this particular ailment that she suffered, she would have been labeled as a complete societal outcast. 12 years. That's a big problem. So this woman has a big problem. For 12 years, she cannot stop the bleeding. Here's some implications of a condition like that. One, she would have been labeled ceremonially unclean. Well, what does that mean? There's huge implications with that. That would mean that um, if she did have a husband, he would have total grounds to straight up abandon her and leave. So potentially, she's been abandoned by someone too. She could not touch other humans, couldn't even be in the same uh, proximity as other people. 
So cut off from any kind of relationship, any physical touch, any sense of companionship for 12 years. Now try to kind of sit in that and wrap your head around that. 12 years, and, 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 and she wasn't even allowed into the temple to participate in any kind of public worship. Cut off, isolated, lonely, dejected. Well, naturally, this woman tries to remedy her problem. Our text tells us that she had spent all her living on physicians. Still couldn't find a remedy. Um, I love how the Gospel of Mark says it. Says it a different way. She had suffered much at the hands of many physicians, which ironically is exactly how John Roberts' patients describe their office visits. Um, it is. Have you ever heard of the Talmud? The Talmud is a compilation of, of uh, Jewish uh, ceremonial and uh, civil laws. And here is one, this is, this is a real thing, a real remedy that advises uh, for this woman's condition. Here's, here's something that it would advise this woman to do uh, were they to come and go, were she to come and go, okay, I've tried everything, what else do you have? This is something that's in an actual book called the Talmud. It says this, take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a small silver coin, of alum the same, of crocus the same, let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take of Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine and give her to drink and say, arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. What the what? (laughs) That's a real thing. That that was a remedy for this ailment. And you know she would have had to have tried that. She's tried it all. She's literally spent all of her life trying to fix what's wrong with her ultimately trying to save herself. And yet nothing is working. No remedy is working. She has a big problem and just can't quite seem to find a remedy. Now, application for our lives. We're born into a really, really big problem. And we do not have a remedy on our own. And it's called sin. And it separates us from God. And it separates us from each other and it separates us from our true selves. And we might can mask it a little bit better because it's internal and this woman's is is external. But this problem is just as isolating and it's just as nasty and it's just as shameful and it's just as life threatening and hopeless. I mean, how ridiculous did some of those solutions sound for her to try to fix herself? Well, do you want to know some things that, that some other man-made solutions that sound just as ridiculous to the ears of a God who can only hear the pleas of his son on our behalf? Um, just trying to be a good person. Just trying to do it right. Uh, going to church. Uh, not doing drugs. Uh, giving a little. Being, being less bad than the, than the next guy. Going green. Finding love, finding success, being religious, being spiritual, you know, works-based righteousness. And the list goes on and on and on of how we try to save ourselves. And yet these things that we do or have done or know people who are doing right now, they are just as far-fetched as boiling three Persian onions. 
Romans 5.1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of faith? I want to look at this woman. This is my next point, and this was so freeing and fascinating to me. My next point is this, imperfect faith made perfect. Look at verse 44 with me. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So what kind of faith did this woman have? Was it super robust and solid and confident and she had it all together and knew it all? I don't think so. Um, So I have three daughters and occasionally they help me with yard work, which normally ends up into more work you know, for me and having to replace lawn equipment and stuff, but it's cute and fun and it gives them a little piece of the, you know, the ditto palace. So, you know, I I let them come out there and mess around, but, but they're offering what they can, you know, at seven, five and two, it's imperfect. It's weak. It's messy. And it's probably, at least for the older two, not altogether motivated by the purest of motives. They have dollar signs in their eyes a lot, you know, (laughs) So it's not motivated by, oh, just dad has just given me so much. And look at this house he's provided. I just want to, I just want to pay it back. You know, it's basically like, I want another frozen doll. Give me a chore, you know? So, but it's imperfect. It's weak. It's messy. They're doing what they can. And yet I I take joy in their feeble efforts. Well, you look at this woman at the core, this woman's faith was, was ignorant, I mean, after years of trying everything in the book, she basically is taking a chance that, that Jesus and his magical robe might do the trick. Her faith was superstitious. It was presumptuous in many ways. It was uneducated. It was weak. It was imperfect. And yet, Christ honored it. Why? Because it was real. Isn't that encouraging? To a bunch of people who can't quite seem to just nail this hardy, rock solid, unwavering, never, um, never clouded by my own feelings or my own circumstances kind of faith. Isn't that reassuring? I mean, how many of us came to faith in Christ with everything figured out? We, we knew it all. We had it all. All of our doctrinal ducks were in a row. You know, we knew everything about the perspicuity of scripture and the atonement and the Trinity. And uh, our eschatology was really nice and polished. And our motives were just that we wanted Jesus, none of his gifts. We just want you, Savior. No. It was childlike. It was foggy. But that's often the beginning of an authentic trust. So not only is this woman's faith ignorant, but it's kind of selfish in a way. She wanted healing, but not the healer. What she wanted to do was slip in, touch this magic garment, and then disappear. But what we have in the scene is Jesus caring way too much for partial restoration. You see, he's not a distant kind of savior who wants to let you slip in and kind of get this get out of hell free card and then go about your merry way. Do your life the way you want to do it. I'll just kind of do this favor for you. That's not the kind of savior that personally engages us. He's not a distant savior. He doesn't half-heartedly grant you permission and then say, okay, 
Go about your merry way. He wants to expose us. He wants to expose and ruin our little kingdoms. And he wants to invite us in to show us his. You see, if someone's waiting to have it all figured out and they're waiting to have it all together before they come, they'll never come. And I think that's one of the things that paralyzes us and, and the, a misunderstanding of this gives us such a fear in evangelism is that we think we have to either know everything before we can go and we have to present this really uh, polished, glossy you know, pamphlet on why you need to come to Christianity. We either think we have to know it all or we set this standard or this bar for people that they have to be able to articulate everything about the Christian faith. And what I see modeled here is this woman is a phenomenal example of what coming to true faith in Christ looks like. Because in essence, here's what she's saying. There's something wrong with me. I see it. I feel it. I know it. Jesus, I've heard that you heal. I've heard that you make people new. So here I am. Here's my shameful mess. I'm not even supposed to be here, not only in your presence, but the presence of any other people. I'm embarrassed. I know who I am. I know my issues. Would you heal me? You see, that is a genuine cry for help. And it's not wrapped up in cheesy, churchy lingo and garb. It's simply saying, you know what? That relationship, my goodness, uh, my career, my kids, my stuff, my self-made identity, it's not doing it and it won't do it. Can you do it? You see, when you genuinely throw yourself upon Christ, the spirit will not leave you out to dry. He doesn't keep his people trapped in spiritual infancy. If you've been healed, if you have really and authentically encountered the real Jesus, then you will grow. You will long for the Savior. You will work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so Jesus honors this woman's small, imperfect, but real God-given faith. And he wants to show her and this crowd who he really is and what he really does in healing. He wants to show her the good news. Look in verse 45 and 46 with me. So she comes up, she touches the garment, discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, this is interesting. What exactly is Jesus doing here? I mean, is he trying to embarrass her? She must have heard him ask this question. She must have thought she got away scot-free. Okay, I accomplished my mission. You know, I know I'm not even supposed to be in this setting, but I did my thing and she's already bolting. Our text tells us that she's already headed out. So why is this, you know, kind of giant record scratch? She would have to absolutely be freaked out at hearing the savior of the world go, hold on, hold on, stop, quiet. Something just happened. Who touched me? What's he doing here? Because she's not supposed to even be around people, let alone touch the creator of the world. She had just snuck in and touched God, clean, holy, encountering unclean. So what would happen? 
She's ashamed. She knows who she is. She knows this is off limits. And now there's a spotlight. All eyes glaring at this insignificant, broken, damaged nobody. 12 years of agonizing isolation and shame and despair and fear and loneliness. What will the God of the universe do? Scold her? Embarrass her? Tell her that she wasn't quite good enough to make the cut for healing? Here's what he does. Look in verse 47 and 48. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Isn't that what we're to do in the presence of God? She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. How embarrassing would that have been and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That's my last point, from damaged to daughter. Guys, that's what the gospel is. It's upside down. It's surprising. He's on his way to go help someone. Jairus would have been uh, wealthy. Uh, He was prominent in his community. And yet he stops and he engages someone who's insignificant, who's damaged, who's weak. And the savior of the world says, daughter. Do Do you get the import of that interaction? I mean, can you even wrap your head around? This is the only place throughout all of the scriptures that Jesus addresses anyone as daughter. The only place. What's he saying in that? Here's what he's saying. Hey, she's with me. I'm royalty. So is she. Guys, it's unbelievable. And we absolutely cannot miss what Jesus says in this statement. He says, I didn't come for the clean ones. I didn't come for the righteous ones. I didn't come for the ones who have it all together. I came for the sick, the lonely, the dirty, the shamed. Is that not hopeful? If you've ever been trapped in shame or fear or guilt, then you get what this woman was feeling. She was about to be completely exposed for her issues and her insecurities and her doubts and who she was. She had timidly, secretly, trembling approached Jesus, hoping just give me a droplet of grace. I I just want an ounce of it and and then I'll be out of your hair and then I'm out of here. Just let me get in and get an ounce. And what does he do? He unloads waterfalls of his grace. Isn't that what the gospel is? Isn't that what happens to those of us who are believers who gravitate towards kind of forgetting the gospel and what it says about us? You know, we we think the father kind of winces at us. For those of us who are believers, we mess up, then we mess up again, then we mess up again. And we come into his presence and he's kind of wincing at us going, you're back again? The same thing? Ah, you're a burden. And yet that's not at all what our text depicts. You see, he delights 
in us. Why? Because we're great? Because we mustered up some faith and we made a decision for him and now we're on the right side? Is that why he delights in us despite our ailments, despite our sin, despite our mess? Not at all. He delights in us because he delights in his son. And for those of us who are hidden with Christ, that means that when we approach him, we're not in our own tattered, nasty clothes anymore. We're covered in the perfect, righteous robes of his son, Jesus. And he delights in that every single time. You have to imagine that the enemy was in her ear. That's why she's trembling. And doesn't he get in your ear? That's, that's what the name Satan or devil means, that he's an accuser. Don't touch him. You know you're not worthy. Don't, you, you're not even supposed to be near them. Doesn't he tempt us to do the same? That's why she's trembling in his presence. Does the enemy trap you in fear? Trap you in timidity? Whispering? Lies? You want some ammo for when that happens? We just sang it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Isn't that good? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me the gospel. And he delights in his people, his weak, imperfect people, because we're covered. So she comes to Jesus in fear. She comes to Jesus in secret. She comes with uncertainty. Is this going to work? Is it not? She comes with inner turmoil. And yet, how does she leave? Our text tells us that she departs in peace. Peace. That's what happens when you meet the real Jesus in faith. It's not always happiness. It's not always health. It's not always answers, but it's peace. I want to wrap it up telling a story. Um, you know, my uh, experience, uh, most of it in, in ministry is, is with students and, and talking to them about you know, coming to terms with the fact that your desires, your will, your world is going to have to come to an end and you're having to entrust it all to another. Especially in your youth, that can seem daunting. Wait, so you're saying I've got to die and, and something else, someone else has got to live through me. That, that seems scary. Yielding everything, giving everything up, that seems scary. You know, uh, I remember talking to my, my father-in-law about his conversion as a, as a college student, and he recalls clearly thinking, I mean, clearly thinking this. Well, all right, here it goes. I'm giving it all up. Fun, happiness, friends, you know, a good life. It's all going to go away. I'm going to be this weirdo Christian, you know, who dresses in some kind of weird, you know, silver spacesuit and is this robot. But you know what? Whatever. If it, if it means following you, I'll do it. And I think it's a lot of, of, of what the enemy tells us yielding our life looks like. You know, Jesus is his offering uh, for healing and for peace and for salvation. It's genuine. But guys, 
we have to know that it's loaded. You see, authentic faith in Christ is not just slipping in for kind of a spiritual gas station type experience and then going about our own way. It's a holistic yielding, all of us, every part, to Jesus. Probably one of the most clear illustrations of that is found in a book by C.S. Lewis called The Silver Chair. I don't know if you've ever read it. But the main character, Jill, she sees a lion. You know who the lion is. It's Aslan or the, the Jesus character. She sees a lion. And what would you do if you saw a lion? You would run away. So she runs into the woods and she's running and running and running. And so far that she becomes so thirsty, she's literally almost going to die. Well, in, in kind of the distance, she hears the gurgling of a brook running water. So she's, you know, finds her way towards this brook and the closer and the closer that she gets to it, she sees that this lion Aslan is laying right there in between her and the water. What she desperately needs to live, there's a lion right in between it. Listen to their exchange. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Jill doesn't move. Are you not thirsty? The lion asks. I am dying of thirst, replies Jill. Then drink. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. I can't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Do you get that? What Jesus is saying is that he invites you to come and drink, but on his terms, What this woman wanted was on her terms, I just need this thing fixed and then I'm gonna go and do life how I've been doing it. And he says, whoa, 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 hold on. We're gonna do it my way. We're gonna do it a different way. You know, as Lucy in other books says of Aslan, of Jesus, he's not safe, but he's good. You see, we don't come to Jesus and take him just as savior, but not as Lord. Jesus doesn't promise not to do anything to you. In fact, he promises the opposite. He promises to take your life and your little world and crush it and then revolutionize your allegiance and point them back to the kingdom that matters. And when Jill finally knelt down and and drank from the lion's waters, the book says this, it was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. So I put myself where Jill is and I ask myself and I ask you, what masks my thirst? What masks my desire to come to these living waters, as John 7 says? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it fear? Is it the stagnant, dead water of the world, trivial entertainment, fleeting pleasures that even you know don't last? Paper-thin achievements that no one really cares about? This woman who was damaged, who had plenty to lose, who came and it was risky business putting herself in this crowd, in the presence of the Savior. She departed in peace, 
So I ask you, do you have peace? Don't wait. Don't spend your living on on doctors and pointless remedies that cannot fix, that cannot heal. Let this woman be a model. Just bring your stuff and drop it at the foot of the cross in faith and be brought near, be drawn in by a God who the book of Zechariah says delights over his people with singing. That's the gospel message and a story about an insignificant, broken, fearful, scared woman. Do you know that Savior? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, we are thankful that you have given us yourself. You've revealed your character. You've revealed who you are through stories like this, Lord. And Lord, you've given us the living word. And Lord, as we've seen him on display this evening in this interaction, Lord, for anyone in this room who is either trapped in fear and shame and guilt or who has never come to you, the living water. Lord, I pray that this would be a balm to their soul. I pray that it would encourage all of us to bow a knee in the worship. Lord, you delight to save sinners and you did not come for the the well. You did not come for the strong. Remind us of that. Press that deep into our hearts and may that affect the way that we live. Because Lord, when we mess up tonight and again and tomorrow and the next day, may we not be timid to come into your presence. Remind us, remind us that because of your work, your finished work, we're in for royalty and you want us. Take these things, apply them in a way that only your Holy Spirit can. We ask it only in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, God.